0: hello and welcome to the world of mouth podcast where we share the stories of the world's best chefs and restaurateurs and their favorite destinations to travel and eat my name is kenneth nars and i'm the creative director of world of mouth a platform that connects more than 600 restaurant experts who share their favorite restaurants from the best place for a pizza slice a taco or hamburger to the latest must-visit new fine-dining restaurant opening. Today we're meeting Lennox Hasty, the chef and owner of Fire Door in Sydney, one of the world's most famous wood-fueled restaurants. Lennox Hasty spent his early career working at Michelin star restaurants across Europe, and while working in the Basque Country, he realized he had lost focus on the most important in cooking, quality ingredients. He got a job at the legendary open fire restaurant Asadore Cebari, and worked there with chef Viktor Arginsonitz for five years, pushing the limits of what could be cooked over fire. We will hear about Lennox Hastie's decision to move to Australia in 2011, where he started a new chapter with Firedoor in 2015. Since, he has won several awards and has been featured in a Chef's Table episode in Netflix. At the end of the podcast, he will reveal his favorite restaurants in Australia, the Basque Country, and in the rest of the world. You'll also find these places in the World of Mouth app. Lennox Hasty, please. You tell me who is Lennox. Who is Hasty? Uh,
1: well, I'm I'm Lennox Hasty. Um, I'm a chef and uh, co-owner of uh, two restaurants in Sydney, Australia. One's called Fire Door, uh which has been open about nine years, and the other one is uh, Gilders or Gilders, uh which has been open about eighteen months. Um, I also um, authored a book, Finding Fire, and I write part time for the Australian.
0: Yeah. And uh for those who would not have heard of you, uh as you said finding fire and uh, fire cooking, that's uh that's your thing. Please uh tell me a few words how would you describe your main restaurant Fire Door for someone who hasn't heard of it. Um so Fire Door is Australia's only fully
1: fire-powered restaurant. It's um fairly it came through a desire to see whether that was a possibility in terms of to create a restaurant that was a hundred percent wood fired, and in, that's in, obviously in terms of the cooking. We don't have any charcoal; we just have lots of wood, and literally we take the best ingredients on the day and subject them to different forms of cooking over the fire. And you know, we we see about forty people. We do a we do a turn, so we end up doing about sort of eighty people a night um, with a, a, an ever-growing team of people who want to learn
0: um, about how to cook with wood fire. If we take a few or quite a few years back, uh, you're actually, you don't come from Australia, you were born in, in, in the UK, <clears> is that right?
1: Yeah, I was born just outside of London in Roehampton and grew up in sort of the southeast, I grew up in West Sussex. And um, started cooking when I was about 15. I started working part-time in a one Michelin star manor house nearby uh, called Time Manor, which was quite exceptional at the time and was a, a real insight for me into the, the runnings of a professional sort of French-style
0: kitchen. And then uh, a few years forward, you... Uh ended up in a very famous restaurant. But uh, was that then straight there to Spain or how did you, uh, you did a few other places?
1: Yeah, I trained in London um, after school at Westminster and then went to, um, meanwhile, whilst working at Le Gavroche, which is just now sadly closed in the last uh, last week, um, which is, again, one of those training grounds and wanted to find the, the, the kind of the next step after that um, and decided to move out of the city and went to Le Mans on in Oxfordshire with Raymond Blanc, uh, where I spent four years. Um, and again, very intensive, incredible um, training ground for any, any young chefs and continues to be so, which is great to see. Um, the legacy continues. And I think after working in... Um, so many French restaurants, you know. I was always following, following Michelin, I suppose, and working in French restaurants. I wanted to go spend some time in France. I so briefly went to go and work with uh, Marc Ferrat in Annecy, and then from Annecy, um, went on to continue driving down to the Basque Country, um, and started investigating what was going on in San Sebastian and Ostia, which at that stage, before the the Michelin stars came out, and japan uh was the highest concentration of michelin stars per square meter so i figured there's got to be something something bizarre going on in this this place i've never been to because i've only ever been um you know typically in the uk and most uh most people in, in britain only go to the south of spain tend to look searching for the the beaches and the better weather um but never fully explored the north and um went to, um, again, chasing the and stars, I suppose, in a way, because I always wanted to go for one, I always wanted to improve, I always wanted to go up to another level. So I was going from a one star to a two star, two star to a three star, and started working briefly, brief stint with um, Martin Berestegui, um outside of town, and then got to a stage where it really, it was the food was going in a direction that was removed from what I loved most, which was the the ingredients.
0: And then, uh, basically, after that was where the the big uh, step happened that changed your pretty much your 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 whole career and probably your life as well. Tell me, you you went yeah. went up to up to the ma- mountainous region in in the Basque Country.
1: Mm. Yeah, so I was uh, feeling a little bit lost and disillusioned as a young chef. Um, I love the region, so. I was helping out working in a local Pinchos bar um, called Astalena, and um, overheard two people who just just basically come from this place. Um, we're talking about this restaurant in the in the mountains, uh, where there's a chap, um, some man who was just grilling everything, and for some, something that kind of sparked an interest in myself to go and. I suppose find something a little bit different a bit off the beaten path and uh next literally the next day i asked for the day off hired a car and drove um drove up to made the pilgrimage up to axe bay um, at the base of the mountains and found um what was a and still continues to be in I suppose in essence a, a, a traditional azador uh with a bar downstairs and a, and a, a small restaurant upstairs and um Met the at the time Victor Bidor, who continues to be there. Um, very you know, doesn't look like a chef, <laughs> even though he's every chef's chef. Um, but um, very unassuming, very down to earth. Very um, obviously, didn't speak any English, I didn't speak really much, you know, smattering of Spanish. And uh, so instantly, it was quite difficult to kind of uh, I suppose converse um, and find common ground. But I, my intent was. I suppose my intent from, you know, I had a letter from a Mexican friend. I had um, my CV, which I felt was fairly strong with Michelin, but he was quite keen that he was after hard work, what I could figure out, and he wasn't interested at all in Michelin. And uh, so I started work there the next day and only intended to go spend a year in Spain, um, but ended up falling in love with the, the place and the unique style of cooking
0: and ended up being there for five years. <laughs> and that um, before that, I mean, stepping into this kind of, I mean, <clears throat> Asadare Chibari. Currently, as you said, it's uh, I think in the podcast, it's it's been the it's been the restaurant that all pretty much all the most of the chefs mention and say that that's the one they love most. That that's the mm-hmm. one they would go for if they could have a meal one meal um what, your your approach to fire open fire cooking at that point when you stepped into that restaurant how much experience did you have of that or did you
1: um i think minimal i mean i think it's only just growing up and having you know having barbecues in the summer you know like most people do like it wasn't part of the even though it's it forms part of all our histories you know only over 250 years ago it's wasn't part of my upbringing. Um, wasn't It wasn't part of the food culture in terms of that strong barbecue scene um, or cooking with fire. Fire was kind of relegated to a bit of a or grilling as a process. And um, with the full, you know, with, with the formation of sort of um, uh, sort of new conveniences, had then been relegated towards most most Michelin style kitchens. At that stage had a gas grill. Um, and, uh, where, where most things would be perfectly bar marked at 90 degree angles. And that was an indication of something being grilled. That was a kind of a standard of what grilling was and it had its limitations. And so to go to a place where, um, or Victor, Victor had, had, you know, not trained, but had grown up with these early memories of cooking over a wood fire and it resonated with him so strongly in terms of how he felt about ingredients. And to see that there was the possibility to um, not only cook with with strength, but with with a delicate
0: touch as well. And this year, the year you started there was in uh, 2005? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then, I mean, there was, uh, I mean, currently talking about uh, open fire cooking, it's a very different era now, but Mm. only... So a few years back, it was, as you said, I mean, it was not very common to see that in, in top restaurants.
1: Yeah, and not so, I'm not, even in the, the basic ones, like a lot of, like over the years, we've kind of become more and more, we try and make our lives a bit easier. Um, generally, as human beings, we tend to, a lot of us tend to take the easier path. And, you know, you'd see even the, even though the Bass, the north of Spain has this amazing tradition of like, you know, grilling seafood and meat. But typically even over the years, like most of those restaurants have, have sort of moved, converted towards um, using charcoal, which is, you know, it's, it's a lot easier in terms of the, the timing, the, the, the burning, the management. So to actually take large sections of wood and create charcoal, you know, typically there's two separate processes that are then brought together in one restaurant. You know, to be actually to burn down tons of wood um, and then subject it to the ingredients is a, is a very different game, and um, it, it ends up with, you end up with a very different result. Like the, the 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 way in which the the you understand the different windows of opportunity there are with the fire and the different stages of the fire, and it's also in tune with understanding the different ingredients and types of ingredients and the different times of year. And it's when you put those together that you have a lot of, uh, it, despite being working with fire, you have a lot of control and you have a lot of choice in the matter and you can actually create the most beautiful natural form of flavor enhancement. Uh,
0: I mean, during your, you said four four or five years at Echibari. Five years. Five yeah. years, yeah. Uh, I mean, if you would look back now and would have to pick the the, the the main, the most important lesson that you learned there, what what could that have been? Uh,
1: Golly, I mean, I think first and foremost is the fact that it sort of took me, what I love about cooking with fire is it takes, it it puts me in close contact with the ingredient and there's nowhere to hide. But I I think in terms of just that, it just kind of opened my eyes to explore further, which is what I continue to do. I continue to explore different forms of cooking with fire, um, not only in Australia, but also around the world um, and different types of wood. And that continues to inform, like it's, it's this ability to kind of um, understand that you never, you never, the journey's never over. You, you're always continuing to learn more. Like I've been cooking with fire for, I don't know, about 16 years now and I probably know that much. Like it's just, it's so expansive. It's not, re, it's not a reductive form of cooking. Hmm. It's, it's so, it has so much growth and so much potential and so much possibility and it's such a, it's such a beautiful human act, you know, it's an interactive sport that, essentially heightens all your instincts and you're you engage you have to be engaged you have to commit and the the result is you only you, you literally only get out of it what you put into it and you have to understand you yourself are an ingredient and the, and the thing that makes it beautiful is we all grill differently as well like you know i grill differently to the way victor grills you know it's 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 it's, it's a very much a personal statement it's a personal way of cooking
0: yeah 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 living in that tiny village for five years <laughs> how as a young chef how was that
1: um <laughs> it's quite something um I, I i actually again wasn't expecting to like i say i was only expecting to be there for a short time um so i actually lived in the ruin of victor's childhood home um, at the base of the mountain with his brother at the time uh, but it was definitely like half a ruin there was no there was no, I mean, you you get you, we had running water, but it was only occasionally hot. Um, there were sheep would come in downstairs, in the downstairs living room. In the lounge, there was no kitchen. There was just an upstairs bedroom. But the thing about it was obviously being close to the restaurant where I spent most of my time. I mean, that back in those days, we were doing um, six, you know, working six days a week. We had one day off. It was Monday. The Victor and I would go running in the mountains, which were just behind. So literally just like run out, jump out the door run up the mountain and meet meet Victor up on the mountain. It was just, you know, it was just, it was so immersive being in that village. There's something very magical, mystical about that place. Um, and there's lots of like folk tales about, you know, special, you know, things like witches. They talk about witches and gold in the mountains, but it is truly a gem. It's truly a treasure. It, like, it's like, it, it is so breathtakingly beautiful that, you know, everyone should visit there at least once in their lifetime.
0: Then uh, you made the decision to to leave. Uh, what, what I mean that that big decision. What, uh, what, wh- where did that come from? Um, I suppose a few things. It was more. It was
1: for me. It was obviously being there for one year and then staying five. Um, yeah, you know, I think you get to a certain point, a certain age, where you have to sort of work out or carve out your future, and you know, it wasn't despite, you know, I love, I loved and continue to love the the restaurant, but it wasn't my restaurant. Um, and most chefs when they get to a certain stage want to kind of do their own thing. Um, I pretty much done everything I could in that, in that restaurant I felt, um, after that many years, like the restaurant changed dramatically from when I started to when I left. Um, and, uh, you know, it continues to, it continues to evolve as all places should, but at the same time, I think because of its being so Basque um, and, and but by saying that it's, the Basque thing is such a beautiful thing because it has such strong roots to tradition. So hence the, the wood fire grilling has incredible ingredients because they, they do, they're so self reliant, you know, they, they have so many amazing gardens and farmers and fishermen and meat production like they're, they're, because of that, they keep it, mean, it's quite insular But it's quite also, despite being at a very high level, it's also, and some of the most incredible seafood ever in my life, um, it's a limited palette of ingredients. Like it's, you know, you you can only go so far. And also a limited palette of the the main ingredient, which is wood. You know, we only really had um, at that stage kind of really two types of woods. You know, we had the the Athena, the Holmoke, which is, again, a very mystical, amazing tree. Um, and we had some apple wood, um, cause there's lots of, um, sort of orchards nearby, but there was only a little, occasionally we get some orange wood from Olympia and then we got some grapevines from Yoka, but it was quite limited in that. And I wanted to really, I suppose, not only carve something out for myself, but also to continue that exploration to look at, okay, well, this is the Basque country. What else is out, is out there in the world? What other traditional cultures are there? And what other things can I learn from other people who have cooked with fire, you know, and have learned things down the generations where that's been passed down and what knowledge can I gain? And also looking at cooking with ingredients I've never cooked with before. Because obviously after five years with Victor, you know, we'd cooked everything from caviar to oysters to espadillas to gambas, to like an incredible palette of ingredients. But again, I think it's always that thing of like, okay, what else can I do? What else, what else can we grill? Um, and and coming to Australia, my dad's the Australian, so my mother's Scottish, my dad's Australian, I have an Australian passport. And I'd also been 11 years um, living in a different country from my partner. And we decided, you know, after, after 11 years apart, maybe we should try and live in the same country to see if we like each other enough. You know, she was uh, training as a doctor. So again, both really committed to our craft, committed to learning um but then you know they reached the point that we thought okay well let's let's give australia a go together and um it was a massive change from it was a big change from the the small the small mountain village in Xperchondo to then go to australia which is you know such a big country and is so broad and its and it, it's 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 warm and it's sunny and it's outgoing and it's it's such a change to, as opposed to the sort of the, the isolated kind of, uh, the blinkered on Basques, you know, it's, it's, it's so different. Um, and I suppose I arrived with a, a little bit of trepidation. I mean, frankly, I was fairly, I took a, a short time out. Frankly, I was pretty exhausted after five years working with uh, Um But I had to kind of then start looking at the, cause it, without the ingredients, without the wood, I couldn't cook for me like I wanted to cook with fire I just didn't know what and if there was no was no wood no ingredients there wasn't a story and so started working my way through sourcing different types of wood um, and then looking at the the ingredients in Australia and going well there's there's some really amazing things here to be I think to be highlighted particularly with the um, you know learning a lot more about the indigenous culture in Australia and the way in which they would work with fire and so I started. I started going. Okay, well, if I want to do this, I need to do this where I can have access to probably some more people. I need to be able coming from overseas. You need to be able to make a name for yourself, and in order to do that in Australia, I had to be. I had to choose Sydney or Melbourne, and you know, I knew I couldn't open a restaurant just by myself. I needed to partner with somebody, and uh, partnered with uh, the Think Group at the time,
0: which is Leon Think. And that's where uh, Firedoor started.
1: Yeah, it was a a long gestation period uh, because from going to, you know, to meeting someone and going, oh, let's, you know, you get someone on board, you go, oh, let's do this, and it sounds great, and everyone goes, amazing, okay, well, then we've got to find, this is what we want to do, so where are we going to do it? And to be able to do something like that I wanted to do in a city with all the regulations and, and to do something that had never been done before was a tall order and so it took me four years to to get it to get it open basically it took yeah you know 120 different spaces um different regulations different you know a lot of red tape a lot of misunderstanding and there continues to be a lot of misunderstanding over over wood fire i think and what it what it is and what it can be um and you know, we're classified as a charcoal chicken shop we have neither charcoal nor chicken you know it's it, it's 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 very unusual, you know. We almost have to reset the classification because previously there's only sort of Argentinian meat grills, which is one of the biggest, obviously, followings of uh, of wood fire or you know wood fire pizzas. You know, the first thing I built in there were two wood fired ovens uh, side by side, and everyone thought they were getting a new new local pizza joint. So it's, it, it it took a long time. Um, it continues to take, you know. I was always in this uh, in hospitality and cooking. You know, it's my life. I'm I, I, I'm in this for the long game anyway. Um, but it was, I suppose, it was also the understanding. Despite it was a very difficult four years, it was necessary to then develop the relationships um, that I have now with producers with you know whether that be sort of supplying you know fish, shellfish, vegetables, the farmers. the the people who supply the wood, you know, those relationships is what has allowed me to sort of have a really good, that fundamental basis to be able to then go to the next level and take it further.
0: And uh, for those who haven't been to your place, uh, as our our friend Pat Nurse, food writer, said uh, in the Netflix program where you are, uh, about about the uh, about your your grilling and wood fire cooking uh, you have ovens that looks like uh, gates of hell uh, with the uh, burning the the woods and so uh, it 's a very it 's a very complex process should be should be say it so uh, with different woods and so how did the australians i mean generally people abroad would uh, simply see Australians as, as grilling people who do a lot of barbecue uh, but this is something very different and that's been from the very beginning how did uh, the Australian uh, customers embrace your style and your the things that you were doing
1: uh, I mean it's, it's taken some time I, mean, I think I think as human beings as soon as you light a fire like as anyone who walks it's a, it's, it's a small, it used to be a cafe. It's a, very, it's, it's a fairly relatively small restaurant. It's all open plan. I'd never had a restaurant, never had an open plan restaurant, never worked in an open plan restaurant. And it was almost, again, I suppose the opposite of Echabari in a way because of the, the grill, Echabari is so removed from the dining room. Um, I suppose a couple of things, uh, mainly because of space, but also I wanted to have invite people into my world. I wanted to to have that immediacy of taking something from the grill and being able to serve it directly to a guest uh, who was sitting at the counter, or, you know, to be very, uh, very... Again, we talk about those windows where something is is at its peak, and it was like I wanted that to be as minimal as possible, so there's almost this, this directness. Um, and, I mean, the, the every single day we have to essentially light a fire, you know, we can't just go in and flick a switch it's like you have to build a fire light a fire and then time all the preparations in harmony with the heat so whereas you know, typically as a chef you kind of go okay well, i'm going to do this followed by this follow by this you kind of work out how you prepare your ingredients we we literally go re- kind of reverse engineer it we have to work out when the fire is ready and what we can cook at various times and with the the australian wood um the Australian hardwood, the iron bark, is very different to the woods I've been used to in Europe, I suppose. Um, and it actually burns 400 Celsius hotter. Um, we actually superheat our oven, so it's actually, it, it is, in essence, ends up being a furnace. Um, but it means you get a very clean burn. It also makes, it's, it's kind of the only way you can make it possible to cook everything over fire for, you know, 80-odd people a night. Uh, when they're obviously eating different things at different times, mm-hmm. you know, it's, and it's about find, finding a way not only to, I, I suppose that the the initial thing was like, I felt compelled to open a restaurant. I wanted to open a restaurant. I wanted to see if it was possible. I opened the restaurant. People seemed to, you know, very, we got, you know, there was huge anticipation because I'd waited so long. People seemed to enjoy it. Um, whether they understood it, I don't think so um, early on. Um, and then I had to work out, okay, well, how do I make this not just a one trick pony? How do I make this sustainable? How do I teach other people to do this? And how do I, you know, continue to grow and evolve with this style of cooking? Because otherwise it's like most things, it's like you do, do something once, you do it for an event, it's great, but it kind of like, you know, unfortunately like, like fire, if we don't continue to burn the fire and learn and teach more people, it it the, the flame will die it will it will die out and there'll be a, there'll be a part there'll be a, a whole style of cooking um that will, will be lost for future generations uh
0: as you mentioned uh you you spent years and con- uh, are still spending years uh about for uh sourcing the produce that you have and you have some some, some pretty uh amazing produce there if you would have to pick a few of your favorite things uh that you serve, Uh, mention please a few of them.
1: Uh, I'd say currently um, incredible oysters from Tartara, from Gary and Dan and Tartara, Um, Sydney rock oysters, but on completely another level, Uh, which again, it's very difficult when when you talk about ingredients, you're choosing ingredients that can hold up to a fire Again, it's a bit of a the ultimate lie detector. So many ingredients, if they're not good enough, just fall by the wayside. So it has to be a really high quality ingredient, and these are just these just the way in which they not only are the flavor changes over the fire, but it actually is enhanced. It becomes almost something else. You create something else just by cooking it in this way. Um, an incredible, like I mean, we're very blessed. There's so much, so much sea around us, but incredible coral trout currently. From a good friend of mine called Chris Bolton, who's uh, a line fisherman, a single line fisherman up in far north Queensland, Mine Beach. And he goes out small boats, literally one line, one fish, kills the fish in 20 seconds, the whole deal, you know, puts it on a plane, we pick it up at the airport. So it's that having that direct connection, you know, he sort of messaged me this morning about, you know, what the conditions are doing, it gives me not only the best ingredients but also a really good understanding of what the people who produce fish farm what what do they do with the ingredients what 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 they go through and what and what hardships they have because at the end of the day we have to support each other um and if, if if you know we've got to find ways in which we can work with each other he's you know i'm very single about what i want to do in terms of you know i want to cook the best ingredients over fire. Um, but the people, or everyone we worked with tends to specialize in one thing. Like the oyster guy, just does oysters. He doesn't do anything else. He just does oysters. It's like, Chris, he's devoted his life to the reef and he just fishes coral trout, that's it. Like, it's very singular. It's a very different sort of mentality. It's the, the ability, I think, in the restaurant to kind of pull these incredible producers together who dedicate their lives to one thing for, them, for, for us to be able to enjoy and to celebrate.
0: In the next part of the podcast, Lennox Hasty will reveal his favorite restaurants in Australia, the Basque Country and in the rest of the world. Uh, Let's talk a bit about Sydney as well. Um, Sydney as a restaurant city, as you said, I mean, uh, amazingly diverse with all kinds of different food and so. um, But uh, I'll ask you for for some uh, recommendations. Uh, some favorite places. Mm-hmm. I mean, of any any category, uh, please. Where would you currently send me uh, to eat in in, in Sydney? Oh, yeah. I mean, we do we do very well in Sydney, um,
1: as as we do even even just down in Australia as a whole. Uh, it's so diverse. So there's there's essentially. Not only something at every level, but also something of every type of cuisine at a very high level. And because of the quality of the ingredients we have in Australia, it makes almost a lot of the the Asian food we have here better than it is in Asia. Um, Because so many people have found that now. Um, I think uh, things I currently love and sort of places I'd love and go back to would be, um, there's a Korean place called Sangbai Mabasa. Which is um, actually quite close to Faidor. It's uh, a tiny place, like it's like a tiny like cafe space, but it's family run. With um, the 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 mother and the father and their son and his partner, and and it's it, it it's very warm welcome, very delicious um, food, and a very different sort of take on the usual sort of Korean food you kind of see in Sydney as well okay um more like Korean Korean style home cooking um, one of my favorites also is a again it's a Japanese place but it's not traditionally Japanese it's called Auntie, Uh where Gemma whiteman is a young chef there again it's only been open you know the last sort of two years um, but it just hits the mark in terms of um, it's just bloody delicious. Like flights, imagine flights of sake, warm service, incredible playlist, and the, the food just slaps. Like it's outrageously good. Okay, um, a, a great chef's place uh, where a lot of industry go to is Bar Vincent, uh, which is kind of the quintessential local restaurant. Really uh, small go to place. Um, the food, but the it's a it's a real. Is it, like he's a real good cooker like the food's extremely well executed really simple but has lots of depth of flavor um chef andy you know always will make up a few specials on the spot based on what he feels the best of the ingredients today but just a just a solid classic um banziao um is a beautiful little um asian place asian restaurant in the cannery in rosemary um run by tanya ho and Ben uh, Ben Seinfeld who used to be he used to be a Saint. it was but one of the guys who used to work at St John back in the day yeah um, and he, 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 he again I think that combination of the two is the fact that you know he lives and breathes that nose to tell philosophy and he, he literally will, will you know it's very unusual I think to see such a small place like take in like you know he'll literally break down you know, he's got hardly any space he'll break down whole pigs and use every part across this, this beautiful sort of um, Vietnamese menu with like, you know, pig's heads nuggets and, you know, roasting the whole head and, you know, using the marrow and lemongrass, beautiful broths that are sort of rich and light and just a, a really, you know, warm welcome again. Uh, things that the sort of the more, I suppose more, the more polished end would be things like Lumi, um which is again husband and wife restaurant it's, it's funny I always, I always tend towards places that are l- uh, driven by chefs i suppose and sort of couples and you know because they have skin in the game they're a lot more passionate about what they give and you get a better result so husband and wife that's been going since around uh, right, same sort of time as actually opened just uh, just before fire um, and they kind of turn Italian cuisine, classic Italian cuisine on its head, kind of uh, tasting menu, but with a Japanese twist or with that kind of Japanese purity and singularity. And just because the chef is you know, not only a beautiful man, but he's just like obsessively crazy, like he pours every moment of his heart and soul into the restaurant and he just obsessively kind of gets better and better each time
0: okay um that's just that's just Sydney okay (laughs) (laughs) any other favorites uh Melbourne Adelaide somewhere else in in Australia um
1: Melbourne again it's always a bit of a competition it was they always talk about competition between Melbourne and Sydney about who's doing what and when but the great the great thing is you can do extremely well on both of them um place uh there's um obviously ben um attica ben Shuri, um big fan of his in terms of how he's evolved over the years and then he just continues to like grow his team and explore new, not only i think uh, not, only, not only in a food sense but also in a design sense you know as a i think and, and that's the difference between sort of chefs who are also restaurateurs they kind of think about the whole package which is kind of how I kind of try and do what we do at Fired the, you know, the, the craft around it, the, the, the choice of ceramics, the cutlery, the sound, the music, the reservations, all these details, I think add to the layers and layers of experience. Cause at the end of the day, let's be honest, it's not just all about the food. Um, there's a beautiful place outside of town, which is about an hour outside, which is called Che, which is tiny, which is uh, a Korean, uh, literally their home, literally their, um, um, Young chef who they literally do six six people per sitting. They only do it four sittings a week, so it's only twenty four people that dine there every week. So it's super small, super bespoke. But literally, you're coming into their own home. She makes all her own ferments, including including the drinks. So that's that's it's super incredible. Um, and then um, a Malayan bistro cafe which just blew my mind when I was there, um, which is called Chao Chao Zio. Um, again, it's in a shopping arcade. It's outside of Melbourne. Um, it's in a, in a, in one of the burbs outside of Melbourne, a shopping arcade. It looks so unassuming, but there's just this one woman there who everyone calls Auntie who just like, cooks the most mind blowing dishes with just heart and soul. She just like, it's like having a a meal at home cooked by your mom. If your mom was cooking with like the most incredible ingredients, like, you know, freshly killed chicken, like mud crab, spanner crab, cold trout, foie gras and pigeon. Like it's just outrageous. Wow.
0: If you've been traveling somewhere lately, uh, the last years, any, any favorites abroad in Asia or elsewhere?
1: Um, it's been, yeah, I've done a huge amount of travel. I was in, uh, over in the UK recently, in, um, up in Scotland, actually, and had an incredible meal at a place called um, uh, Glen Turret, which is the distillery, but it's been um, run by La League Restaurant. Yeah. Um, so they've basically created, which is unusual, I think for a, for distilleries, but they've backed the, uh, they've created this beautiful restaurant space, which is just really championing Scottish produce, but in a very different way. Like it's not heavy, it's light. The service, because of the French background and the training, is just on point. Like it's such a beautiful dining experience and a and a and a great place to be. The the chef there is called Mark Donald, um, and doing some incredible things. Um, and then I suppose around the world. I mean, it's been a while since I've been in the Basque country, but um, and and funny enough, people always talk about places like El Cano, which is incredible if you want to eat turbot. But actually, uh, the the sister restaurant, Kai Kaipe, um, for I always uh, dream of the spider crab I had there. Wow, yeah, Which is uh, the, most, the most beautiful thing. Um, and then um, there's one uh, place in, um, um, obviously, if I look at like wood-fired restaurants, things like Exted, where I'm going, actually going to go to go and visit Niklas um, and Florencia Abilio, um, who's an absolute powerhouse. And, you know, we cooked together many times over the years. I'm I'm going there in March um, and we're gonna cook a dinner together again. So it's be always nice to sort of like, especially meet up with not only, you know, a restaurant that's doing amazing things on any level, but it's doing it on a wood-fired level and just to see how they are sort of addressing the, you know, the challenges of the day, how they're evolving, you know, with, with the, the whole wood fire. Um, Cause there aren't many, there is only a handful of fully wood-fired restaurants in the world. Uh, which is sad to see, but hopefully we'll get some more. Um, Ho Chi Minh City has got a an amazing little restaurant called uh, Kuka Kwan, uh, which basically lives by a motto, which is kind of like eat green, live healthy, taste the past. And It just serves the most beautiful, um, fresh, seasonal vegetables grown on a family farm. And it's based in like an old French colonial house. So you, you kind of sit in these different areas and it's just... You just feel your body just feels so great afterwards. Like it's such a beautiful thing. Um, these incredible vegetables, different vegetables I've never seen before, but also the way in which they're kind of handled in a way in which you, you, don't, you, you feel like you're not missing out on not having meat or fish at all. So
0: very beautiful. It's uh, early morning there in in Sydney, so I'll I'll let you soon. I'll let you go. Uh, one last question: uh, <laughs> If you could uh, pack your your bags tonight, uh, close the restaurant, and leave mm. for a few days, uh, go anywhere in the world to have a meal, uh, where would that uh, that be? Uh, my current
1: on my hit list is um, Table by Bruno Vesu in Paris, which I've been Ooh. up. So, yeah, in Paris, which I've I've been following for many years now through Matthias, uh, Croon, but um, you know, and now it's obviously finally being recognised um, and quite rightly so. But just I'm, I'm I'm always interested in, I think, and and drawn to chefs who haven't trained as I trained as a chef, obviously. But you know, people like Victor didn't train as a chef, like Mark Ferrat didn't train as a chef, like all these people who come from different backgrounds. Um and um it kind of from what i've seen it sort of reminds me of what you know mikhail johnson hedone that kind of style of having that kind of a food background but a food background that really despite not being a chef really understands what a great ingredient is and looks at then different combinations of what to do with that ingredient because a lot a lot of the time you go places and it's a lot of yeah, you know, let's be honest it's a lot of same same so when someone's doing something a bit left of center uh, in that way and you just go i really want to kind of immerse myself and experience
0: that yeah great okay uh lennox hasty in sydney thank you so much for this uh great talking to Absolute you pleasure. have a great day there and uh, good luck with everything thanks kenneth thank you Thank you for listening to the Wall of Mouth podcast with Lennox Hasty of Firedoor in Sydney. You'll find all the recommendations mentioned in this episode and more in the Wall of Mouth app, available in your app store, or visit our website at wallofmouth.app. I'm Kenneth Nars, until next week with a new podcast guest.